Hello, it is Ryan, and we could all use an extra bright spot in our day, couldn't we? Just to make up for things like sitting in traffic, doing the dishes, counting your steps, you know, all the mundane stuff. That is why I'm such a big fan of Chumba Casino. Chumba Casino has all your favorite social casino-style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere with daily bonuses. That should brighten your day a little. Actually, a lot. So sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. That's ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. BGW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. As a longtime foreign correspondent, I've worked in lots of places, but nowhere as important to the world as China. I'm Jane Perlez, former Beijing bureau chief for The New York Times. Join me on my new podcast, Face Off, U.S. versus China where I'll take you behind the scenes in the tumultuous U.S.-China relationship. Find Face Off wherever you get your podcasts. Welcome to Pax Britannica. Episode 35. The Sword of the Magistrate. Welcome back to Pax Britannica. Last time we caught up with events in the Americas and the East. The East India Company had clung on, facing off multiple threats that could have crippled or even destroyed it. New England had been graced by the arrival of the Massachusetts Bay Company, while Virginia continued the war with the Powhatan in its yearly cycles of violence. The English West Indies were spreading across the Antilles, their position on St. Christopher ensured by the violent killing and expulsion of native Kalinaga. This week, we'll return to England and away from big-picture, grand-narrative stuff to return to one of my favourite subjects, witch trials. We last looked at witch trials back in episode 18, when we covered the Pendle witch trials as well as a number of other less famous events. We saw how the Jacobean state was far less zealous, or maybe credulous, than English judges expected. James had, after all, overseen a number of witch trials in Scotland, most famously the North Berwick trials, which erupted after the witches supposedly attempted to sink his ship. He had been portrayed in England as the devil's greatest enemy, a pious defender of the word of God, He'd even published a book on it, Demonology, and increased the severity of England's witchcraft legislation. Based on all this, you can forgive a few English judges for believing their new king would jump at the chance to kill some witches. And yet, as we saw all the way back in May, James taking a personal role in witch trials did not mean he was a gullible fool. In fact, James repeatedly discovered accusations to be false, though not always in time to save lives. For the rest of James's reign, and the reign of Charles, witch trials never expanded into panics, as they had at North Berwick, and Will in Essex during the Revolution. 
Like episode 18, today's episode will be largely based on a script for the history of witchcraft. This is purely down to time constraints, I've been very busy with the thesis, so please accept my apologies for the duplication. This week, then, we will examine the changing attitudes within the royal court and larger English society to the witch trials. The first case we'll look at today is known to us not through official records, but rather through a pamphlet written and published by the chaplain of London's famous Newgate Prison, Henry Goodcole. Registered for publication just over a week after the execution of its subject, The Wonderful Discovery of Elizabeth Sawyer, which opens the pamphlet by stating that Goodcole has no wish to be involved in the greater debate over the threat posed by or the existence of witchcraft, and instead is merely relating the truth of the case as it was told to him. Goodcole, in his role as chaplain of Newgate, had spoken at length to the so-called Witch of Edmonton, Elizabeth Sawyer, a poor woman who was hanged in 1621, for murdering her neighbours with witchcraft. What we know of Sawyer is largely from Goodcall's pamphlet, but her fame, such as it is, comes from a play first performed in 1621 called, funnily enough, The Witch of Edmonton. Unlike the pamphlet on the Lancaster trials, there doesn't seem to be any obvious agenda in Goodcall's work other than his desire to warn others of the dangers of heresy. Sawyer is described in the pamphlet as having lived in Edmonton, which is now part of Greater London, but was then considered a separate part of the county of Middlesex. She is said to have been pale, with a significant stoop in her walk, and only one eye, which may have been an inherited condition, or, in the account of Sawyer herself, caused by a child poking her in the eye when she bent over the deathbed of her mother. Speaking of family... Sawyer is said to have been married with multiple children. Sawyer had a reputation for witchcraft among her community, a suspicion that only hardened when her neighbours used a traditional ritual for discovering whether someone was a witch. A piece of Sawyer's thatch was taken from her roof and burned. If the owner of the thatch was summoned by the burning, then they were a witch. Unfortunately for Sawyer, she appeared at the burning, although whether this was just because she just had part of a house stolen and wanted to know by whom is unknown. After the deaths of cattle, a woman called Agnes Radcliffe, and a number of young children, the local magistrate, Arthur Robinson, had Sawyer arrested and ensconced in Newgate. On the 14th of April, Sawyer was accused of the murder of Agnes Radcliffe, as well as two unnamed children. Our friendly neighbourhood chaplain, Goodcole, states that the motivation for the murders was simple malice, aimed at those neighbours who wouldn't buy Sawyer's brooms, although there are suggestions that the death of Agnes was due to a more specific dispute. Agnes had smacked Sawyer's pig for eating her soap, and Sawyer had been naturally irritated by the bashing of her bacon, cursing at Agnes. Sometime later, Agnes fell ill, with her symptoms including foaming at the mouth, and she was dead in four days. In between the dying and the thome, she managed to name Sawyer as her killer in the presence of her husband. The husband recounted this in court, and Goodcall makes a point to say that this testimony heavily affected the jury. 
He went further and described seeing a white ferret scurrying through Sawyer's thatched roof, while local children testified to seeing Sawyer feeding two white ferrets milk and bread. The natural implication here was that the ferrets were familiars, demons or spirits in disguise, which did the bidding of Sawyer. In the face of this testimony, Sawyer remained defiant, pleading not guilty to all the charges. When the jury was split on the verdict, they requested advice from the judge. The judge told them to look to God, but the arresting magistrate wasn't happy with that sort of vague, woolly, open-to-interpretation stuff, and ordered Sawyer searched for the witch's teat. Sawyer, according to Goodcole, resisted, quote, sluttishly and loathsomely, although what he quite means by this I don't know. Despite her sluttish and loathsome resistance, a growth was found near Sawyer's anus, which Robinson pointed to, hopefully not literally, as evidence of her consorting with familiars. Sawyer was subsequently found guilty of murdering Agnes, but found not guilty of murdering the children. Either way, the punishment was the same. So, when Goodcole came to Sawyer, she appeared resigned to her fate, and quite openly confessed to the crimes of which she had been accused. She told Goodcole that she had met the devil eight years ago, appearing to her while she was in the midst of cursing and blaspheming after which he appeared three times a week in the form of a dog called Tom. This devil dog convinced Sawyer to give her body and soul to him, and ordered her to pray to Satan using elements of the Latin paternoster, because of course, Catholicism was involved somehow. After which, Tom sucked blood from her, through her clothes, for 15 minutes, which apparently didn't hurt Sawyer. Tom usually did as she ordered, although he occasionally gave his own orders, and was stroked and pet like an ordinary dog. Except this dog threatened her when she mocked his instructions. Sawyer went on to deny the murder of Agnes, but instead confessed to the deaths of the children, of which she had been cleared. Elizabeth Sawyer remained in Newgate for two days after Goodcall's visit, after which she was taken to Tyburn, where she was hanged for witchcraft and murder. After this, Goodcall appears to have faced pressure from colleagues to hear about Sawyer's confession, as well as hearing about, quote, most base and false ballads. Wishing to correct the record, he wrote up her testimony into a pamphlet in only three or four days, and had it published. The lesson in Sawyer's case was clear. Cursing and blasphemy summoned the devil, and opened otherwise good Christians up to dreadful sin. Her wicked tongue hurt her legal defence, causing her to be unable to, quote, speak a sensible or ready word for her defence, end quote. When Goodcole's pamphlet was adapted into a play, the Witch of Edmonton made heavy use of the Devil Dog, which was played by an actor who appeared incredibly friendly and manipulative. Sawyer initially is merely an old, poor woman, treated unfairly by her neighbours and her social betters, After being beaten by one such neighbour, the dog appears and promises her revenge if she pledges him her soul. Sawyer comes across as much more of a victim, led astray through the efforts of her satanic pet and the persecution of her corrupt neighbours. Professor Marion Gibson of the University of Exeter, writing for the Oxford Dictionary of National Biography, states that this more sympathetic light was due to the arguments of Reginald Scott, 
making its way through society. Scott had persuasively argued that witches were either innocent victims of rampant ignorance and legal barbarity, or mentally ill and senile persons deluded by either their imagination or their Catholicism. As it happens, upon his accession to the English throne, James had Reginald Scott's works burned by the executioner. Scott had mocked his demonology, so perhaps this was more of a personal vendetta more than an ideological case. The other case of witchcraft worth looking at in 1621 is the case of the boy of Bilston. The titular boy was a 13-year-old who accused Jane Clark of witchcraft at the Staffordshire Assizes in 1621. The boy, which I will keep calling him because I can't find a name, appeared possessed, vomiting pins and thread and other things which would not normally have any right to be inside anyone. He also suffered fits when subjected to the Gospel, particularly the Gospel of St. John. Much like with the case of Anne Gunter in 1605, who suffered a similar affliction, the boy was taken into the care of a man of God, in this case, Thomas Morton, Bishop of Lichfield. Just as sceptical as Archbishop Bancroft and Bishop Harsnett, Morton supposedly declared, quote, Boy, it is either thou or the devil that abhorrest the words of the gospel. And if it be the devil, he, being so ancient a scholar as of almost 6,000 years standing, knows and understands all languages, so that he cannot but know when I recite the same sentence out of the Greek text. But if it be thyself, then thou art an execrable wretch who plays the devil's part. End quote. Would anyone like to take a bet that this 13-year-old English boy understood Biblical Greek? No takers? Because, of course, he had no idea whether Morton was reciting the Gospel of St. John or his shopping list. His fraud was exposed, and he admitted in court that he had lied and wrongly accused Jane Clark. We've seen a number of cases where sceptical officials, both secular and clerical, have exposed high-profile trials of witches as nothing more than fraud. James himself had played a role in at least two that we know of, and it's very likely he was involved in and made aware of other such cases where judicial credulity had led, or almost led, to the execution of innocent subjects. Perhaps James's views on witchcraft had changed, Perhaps he was just as firm a believer in the danger posed by witchcraft in the 1620s as he was 30 years previously, having freshly disembarked from his storm-wrecked ship. In either case, he was almost certainly greatly disappointed in the actions of many of his justices. Perhaps royal policy regarding witchcraft was filtering into the judiciary, either by persuasion or by outright replacement of the more zealous witch-hunters. Perhaps the judiciary had always been dominated by sceptics, which beliefs were far from universal. One case, shown by Ronald Holmes, of a relatively moderate judge, is seen in the complaints of an Edward Fairfax in 1622. Now, the name Fairfax may ring a bell, but this is not the same as the one-time commander-in-chief of the parliamentary armies, Thomas Fairfax. This was his uncle. In 1621, after the death of a daughter, one of his surviving daughters claimed to see visions of witches, 
and she, a sister, and a friend all accused a number of local women of witchcraft and of causing the death of the Fairfax daughter. Edward Fairfax had brought charges against six people for bewitching his two daughters, but the judge had thrown the case out for lack of evidence. Not one to be deterred, Fairfax used his influence to have a second trial held, only for all of the six of the accused to again be acquitted of all charges. One of the key parts of the collapse of the case is that the girls went on to admit that they had lied. The scheme had been devised by the father of one of the friends, and the two Fairfax girls meant to use the accusations to receive attention from their father. The scheming father was arrested and jailed for his role in the fraud, and the judges in both trials criticised Fairfax publicly for his naivete. For Fairfax, well, this was just not on. He could not accept that his wonderful, perfect little angels had lied and caused six people to face the threat of execution. Also, he had been publicly humiliated by these judges. Fairfax brought out the greatest weapon in an Englishman's arsenal. Yes, the angry letter. This letter was actually more of a treatise, to be fair, but it was still angry. Called the Discourse on Witchcraft, it emerged in late 1621 and roundly complained about the behaviour of the judges, notably without actually naming them. Describing himself as, quote, "...neither a fantastic Puritan nor superstitious papist, but so settled in conscience that I have sure ground of God's word to warrant all I believe, and the commendable practices of our English church to approve all I practice." Fairfax was well read, and his discourse made good use of relevant theology, both contemporary and classical, as well as recent cases throughout the kingdom and the continent of Europe to back up his argument. But it didn't work, and this appears to have been the end of the matter. I haven't seen anything to suggest that these unknown women had to face a third trial, no matter how many angry letters Fairfax wrote. These are just a few examples of an increasing trend. More and more, trials imploded in spectacular fashion, as witnesses or accusers folded and admitted to lying, or where trials had resulted in executions, only to face significant criticism after the fact. From 1618 onwards, Professor Malcolm Gaskell states there was only a single execution on the home circuit assizes, which included the counties of Essex, Hertfordshire, Kent, Surrey, and Sussex, such as the growing scepticism and incredulity of the magistrates. When there were successful convictions in the county of Somerset in 1626, a local minister publicly criticised the resulting executions. He faced accusations from advocates of the trial that he, quote, favoured witches, or were of Master Scott's erroneous opinion that witches were silly, deceived melancholics. He fired back, accepting that witches existed, of course, but stating that juries should not believe all the testimony, implying that the Somerset prosecution was based on false testimony. Professor Gaskell goes further, and compares the treatment of slander during James's reign with the growing wariness of magistrates. To accuse someone of being a witch, and then being unable to prove it, would open a person up to charges of slander. The judicial system began to focus more on 
logic and natural truths rather than simply those of theology, and the weight attached to reputation and rumour began to decrease, replaced instead by things as ridiculous as evidence and examined witness testimony. Can you imagine such a legal system? Preposterous. By 1630, with the publication of a new edition of a legal manual, the description of witches and the powers they could wield remained included, but new advice accompanied such instructions, warning against being too credulous. Further, it emphasised the importance of relying on professional medical practices to identify a witch's mark. One Scottish physician, James Hart, writing about accused witches in 1633, argued that, quote, Sometimes God in his justice suffereth such to be punished by the sword of the magistrate, although free from any compact with Satan. End quote. Hey guys, it is Ryan. I'm not sure if you know this about me, but I'm a bit of a fun fanatic when I can. I like to work, but I like fun too. It's a thing. And now the truth is out there. I can tell you about my favorite place to have fun. Chumba Casino. They have hundreds of social casino style games to choose from with new games released each week. You can play for free anytime, anywhere. And each day brings a new chance to collect daily bonuses. So join me in the fun. Sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. BGW. Void or prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. Was the Sphinx 10,000 years old? Were there serial killers in ancient Greece and Rome? What were the lives of transgender, intersex, and non-binary people like in the ancient world? We're Jen. And Jenny. From Ancient History Fangirl. We tell you true stories and tall tales of the ancient world. Sometimes we do it tipsy. Sometimes we have amazing guests on our show. Historians like Barry Strauss, podcasters like Liv Albert, Mike Duncan, and authors like Joanne Harris and Ben Aronovich. We take you to the top of Hadrian's Wall to watch the Roman Empire fall at the end of the world. We walk the catacombs beneath the Temple of the Feathered Serpent under Teotihuacan. We walk the sacred spirals of the Nazca Lines in search of ancient secrets. And we explore mythology from ancient cultures around the world. Come find us at ancienthistoryfangirl.com or wherever you get your podcasts. We'll finish off today by returning to Lancashire for a witch trial. Not to the 1612 trials, but for the 1634 trials. Often called the Late Lancashire Witches to distinguish it from the earlier trials, the events of 1633 and 1634 had more than one connection to the Pendle Trials than just where they took place. Both the Device and the Nutter families, victims of that earlier case, were again on trial for witchcraft. This time with the young Janet Device, one of the prime witnesses in the prosecution of her family, now facing the music for her family's reputation. The prime difference, and why these two cases are so useful in the study of English witch beliefs, is how national officials reacted to the trial. In the words of Professor Sharp of the University of York, quote, If the 1612 executions can be adduced as a symbol of the more extreme aspects of English witch persecution, the government handling of the 1633-34 to accusations demonstrates just how sceptical central authority, the upper reaches of the church, and possibly educated opinion in general, had become about malefic witchcraft. 
by that date. The late Lancashire trials began with a boy called Edmund Robinson, who was probably born between 1622 and 1624, so he was between 10 and 12 years old when he made allegations against a significant number of his neighbours. The reason for the disparity in possible age is that contemporary accounts disagree. That will be a common theme of this case, especially regarding the number of suspects involved. Robinson claimed that on the 1st of November, 1633, which was notably All Saints' Day, he came across two greyhounds while gathering plums. These dogs, one black and one brown, each had strings that appeared to shine like gold attached to their collars. For some reason, Robinson attempted to make them chase a hare for him, but when neither dog seemed interested in doing so, he tied them together and started to beat them. At this point, the dogs transformed into a young boy and a woman Robinson named as Frances Dickinson. Dickinson offered Robinson a piece of silver to, you know, not mention the whole Animorphs rendition, but when Robinson refused to be bribed, she abducted him. Turning the former dog-turned-boy into a horse by putting a bridle on him, she took Robinson a quarter of a mile to a place where around 60 witches were feasting. Here, Robinson was offered food and drink, but after his first taste, refused any more. It was then that he saw six witches in a barn, feeding from a trough, eat their fill, and be replaced by another six. Robinson described the witches as having terrifying faces. After recognising one of the witches as a neighbour's wife, Robinson ran. The coven took off in pursuit, only giving up the chase when two horsemen appeared on the road and scared them off. So, Robinson made it home, where his father immediately sent him out again to find and return two of the family's cows. It was on this dairy duty that Robinson came across a young boy about his age. Their conversation turned to a fight, they came to blows, quote, and they fought so together till this informer had his ears made very bloody by fighting, and looking down, he saw the boy had a cloven foot, end quote. Robinson again fled, only to see the witch he recognised at the Sabbath blocking a bridge. Stunned at this sight, Robinson was taken by surprise by the cloven-hoofed boy and struck from behind. His father, who had become impatient with the lack of sons and cows that had returned to the house, went out to find him. When he did so, young Robinson was crying, and so beside himself that he didn't recognise his own father. In the days and weeks following this incident, Robinson repeatedly saw witches from the Sabbath watching his house, including Janet Device. At one point on New Year's Day, 1634, one of the witches was sat in his chimney. When he called up at her to come down, she disappeared. Throughout this, when young Edmund went to church, he made a big deal about recognising members of the congregation as being at the Sabbath. Yet when the curate of their parish, John Webster, sought to speak to the boy to see what had happened, his father and friends shielded Edmund from his questions and prevented him from answering. A month later, when magistrates Richard Shuttleworth and John Tarkey arrived to conduct the Assizes, they took statements from Edmund Robinson and his father. 
From these accusations, a number of suspects were arrested and sent to Lancaster for trial, where they gave further names. Some accounts put the total number of suspected witches as high as 60. 60 people! That is, Würzburg and Trier numbers, and completely unprecedented in English witch trials. Fear not, I'm not about to bombard you with 60 names and a dozen aliases. I'll only mention a few. Janet Device, the granddaughter of old Demdike, who had provided the most effective testimony during the trial of her family in 1612. Mary Spencer, who would have joined her parents had they not already died. And Margaret Johnson. Aside from Device, whose inclusion is mainly to show how familial reputation was tenacious in these small communities, I've included Spencer and Johnson due to their testimony. Johnson confessed to making a pact with the devil, when he had appeared to her in a fancy black silk suit, called himself Mamillion, and then they had sex. Mamillion promised to supply her with all of her wants and needs, and all she had to do was give up her soul. After doing so, she rode to a sabbat of thirty or forty witches to, quote, consult for the killing and hurting of men and beasts. Each of these witches had their familiars with them, and the devil himself was present among them, quote, more eminent than the rest, which is fair enough, he's the devil, it's his party. Johnson was unable to provide any other details of events at the Sabbath, and so Robinson's testimony of feeding from troughs and drinking foul liquid filled in the gaps. Dr. Poole does point out that while this was not a point-for-point Sabbath found in the description of Catholic demonologists, there are a lot of similarities that suggest that, as the metropolitan elites of London imagined, the North was still steeped in Catholic superstition. Professor Gaskill suggests that it was testimony like this, of diabolic conspiracy, that did the most to erode the legitimacy of the trial. Except under the most zealous witch-hunters, such tales were dismissed as fanciful. The case of Mary Spencer would be funny if it didn't run the risk of execution. It appears that the main article against Spencer was... a bucket. An ordinary bucket, used to collect water from a well. It turns out that people witnessed her call out to the bucket as she ran down a hill. Shock and horror, because gravity's a thing, the bucket rolled down the hill after her. Now, clearly this was sorcery of the most malevolent nature. We have to crack down on this. It will be the end of all that we love. Except, Spencer was having none of it. When examined, she roundly rejected the accusation that she was in league with the devil, proclaiming her status as a good Christian who regularly attended church and could recite the creed and the Lord's Prayer. The issue with the bucket came from a childhood habit. When she was young, she had often rolled an empty bucket down a hill on her way to the well, and she would then chase after it to try and overtake it. If she did so, she would jokingly call to it to catch up. This habit had clearly not been lost in adulthood, and hence the accusation that she had bewitched a bucket to do her dark bidding. Spencer proudly placed her fate in the hands of Christ, and it appears that Christ was listening that day through John Bridgman, the Bishop of Chester. Bridgman, in the manner of many of the Anglican hierarchs, was sceptical of the more outrageous claims, 
and had been ordered by London to keep an eye on proceedings. After hearing the testimony of the Robinsons and a number of the accused, he ordered that five of the suspected witches, including Spencer and Johnson, as well as Edmund Robinson and his father, be taken to London to be examined by experts. To illustrate quite what the official position was leaning towards, the Robinsons were placed under arrest and transported in conditions similar to the women they'd accused. Once the party arrived in London, the true work began. Many, if not most, of the suspected witches had been found to have the witch's mark, the growth or blemish, which was meant to either be a sign of the devil's pact, a source of blood to feed their familiar, or both. The danger of this was that the devil's teat could be literally anything, a wart, a random growth, a freckle, anything at all. So, when they were examined in the capital by a team of seven surgeons and ten midwives, led by the king's own physician, Dr. William Harvey, it was found that the supposed teat on Johnson's body was, quote, nothing but the skin of the fundament drawn out as it will after the piles or application of the leeches, end quote. So while not particularly nice, certainly natural, and not diabolic. For Spencer, who was said to have two witch teats in her, quote, secrets, end quote, Harvey concluded that they were, quote, nothing unnatural, nor anything like a teat or mark, end quote. With these professionals disregarding the physical evidence outright, the case now relied on witness testimony. Unfortunately for the prosecution, this had begun to unravel almost immediately after the Robinsons arrived in London. After being imprisoned in the gatehouse jail, Robinson the Elder had already distanced himself from the accusations, laying the blame for how far things had gone solely at the feet of the magistrates in charge of the Assize, who had ordered him to bring his son to give his testimony, and then ran with it. He denied using the threat of a witchcraft accusation against his enemies, and he claimed that he had never believed his son's story, and was only acting as a concerned father who worried about his son's vision. Imprisoned in London, and concerned about his fate, he had good reason to reduce his own responsibility for a trial that was rapidly disintegrating. But it does make some sense. The magistrates would have reacted to the atmosphere that permeated Pendle, with its rumours of dozens of witches operating in an organised cabal. It is possible that, despite his family's central role in creating this state of affairs, that things got out of hand. Robinson the Younger fairly quickly cracked under examination, because, you know, he was twelve. He admitted that he had invented the stories based on the rumours of the 1612 trial, and he denounced the enemies of his father and his friends, as well as those of the community who had reputations for sorcery, such as Janet Device. Quote, All that tale is false and feigned, and has no truth at all but only as he has heard tales and reports made by women, so he framed his tale out of his own invention, end quote. He had embellished these rumours with the folk tales and superstitions that were common in Lancashire, particularly the tales that were told about the Sabbath at Melkin Tower during 1612. Why had he done this? Edmund didn't say. He denied for decades that anyone had put him up to it, it was only when the minister, John Webster, the curate who had tried to speak to him so long ago, 
was writing a treatise against witchcraft belief in 1677. Then, the now much older Edmund told him that he had done so because his father had told him to. Although by then his father was long dead, so who can say, maybe this was just a way to clear his name. So what happened to the witches themselves? That is sadly unclear. What is known is that the five witches who had been taken to London in chains returned to Lancaster in chains. And in 1636, Mary Spencer and Janet Device were among those still imprisoned in Lancaster Castle, despite the case imploding in spectacular fashion. Thanks for listening to today's episode. I'm happy to say that I've had a great response from the survey. I'm waiting to give the results a proper look, but I have glanced through them, and there were some lovely comments in the feedback section. Thank you to everyone who has already completed it. It'll be up for a week or two more, and there'll be a link in the show notes. Thank you to my House of Lords, the Royal Headsman, executed today. Her Grace, the Duchess of Devon, Michelle Gersich. His Grace, the Duke of Clarence, Rory Martin. And the newly made Earls, the Earl of Dartmouth, Eli Cohen. And the Earl of Sydney, Andrew Rosen. You can join their ranks by going to patreon.com slash Pax Britannica. Follow the links in the episode description to keep up to date on Facebook and Twitter. Thanks to Sounds Like an Earful for the music in today's episode, to every member of my House of Lords, and to you for listening. Hello, it is Ryan, and we could all use an extra bright spot in our day, couldn't we? Just to make up for things like sitting in traffic, doing the dishes, counting your steps, you know, all the mundane stuff. That is why I'm such a big fan of Chumba Casino. Chumba Casino has all your favorite social casino-style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere with daily bonuses. That should brighten your day a little. Actually, a lot. So sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. That's ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. BGW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. Let Mysteries at Midnight be your destination for detective whodunits and captivating mystery stories. You'll hear classic stories like Sherlock Holmes, Agatha Christie's Poirot, and short tales from H.G. Wells, Charles Dickens, Edgar Allan Poe, and others. I'm Christopher and I read these classic stories in the soothing style of a bedtime story, so you can listen to them in bed when you drift off to sleep. Search for Mysteries at Midnight on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or your favourite podcast app, and follow and subscribe so you don't miss out on new episodes.